0: Hey everybody welcome again to f this movie the official podcast of f this scary movie love for scary movie lovers my name is patrick brownley and i'm super excited for this week's show because we are completing our three year long hammer trilogy which means i am joined by the man on the theremin jay bones hey jb
1: it's true and before we start I would like to hand this off to our listeners because God knows once I finished the films, I didn't want to go back and watch them again. I know it makes me less serious. Is there one coach in the hammer films and they just repaint it? Or did they have several coaches? Mm. I think the coach might be in every movie. My guess would be one coach. Very often the movie starts with the coach. Did you notice that? Yes. Yes. And I know there's at least two different colors, but if I ever went back and watched the eight movies that we're going to discuss today, I would do a specific coach watch and maybe do some screen grabs of just what's going on with those horses and
0: coaches in the Hammer films. I look forward to Coach Watch 2023. Coach Watch 2023. Follow at Coach Watch on Instagram. We're going to do that one live. (laughs) <laughs> it! we'll do it live in uh, we'll do it, <laughs> watch live we'll do it live in 2020 we did the hammer frankenstein cycle in 2021 we did the hammer dracula cycle what are we calling this
1: scraping the bottom of the barrel <laughs> and
0: finding out
1: that if cushing and lee do not show
0: up yeah you have a problem Hammer Outliers? What are we calling this? Oh, um, Loose Ends. Okay. I like it. I'm typing that and into the title right now. Obviously, we're not going to
1: talk about every single Hammer film, but if you look at it, at least the way I did, it's sort of you can, you can bunch them into the Frankenstein films, the Dracula films, and then all the films they made because the Dracula films and the Frankenstein films were so damn popular
0: worldwide. Yeah. Um, before we get to talking about hammer films, of course, we're going to read some of your scary movie challenge reviews. If you're new to the scary movie challenge every day during October, when you watch a scary movie, go to Fthismovie.com and leave a seven word review for the scary movie. You watched on that day's posting uh, Jay bones. I think you have more than me. So I'll let you go ahead and start.
1: And I was going to say, it's finally happened. I think it took 11 years. I'm wondering if any of our listeners have also fallen prey to this. Well, I'm going to call it a malady, but it's not. In that you've been doing the scary movie challenge for so long that when you see a new scary movie, the first thing out of your mouth is seven words (laughs) long. You, You now, your brain has been rewired. I swear to God, um I'm trying to keep up with a schedule of one a day. I don't post one a day, but I am trying to wind up with 31 for the month. And every time I sit down, boom-pity-boom-pity-beep-bop-boop. Hey, that's seven words. I'm done. Chris Cooper reviews the new Munsters movie from 2022 and says... They should make this a TV show.
0: <laughs> I believe that was the thesis of our Patreon-exclusive Munsters review, that it would work really well as a TV show.
1: Yes. And as much as I want people to subscribe to our Patreon, um, I think you could summarize that podcast in, I don't know if it's seven words, but it is one sentence. Have you
0: seen the original TV show? <laughs> uh, Adam Story says of Hocus Pocus, Modern kids' movies need more virgin shaming.
1: You know, that almost made my list. I read that last night. Alex Zider reviews Hellboy, Hellraiser 2 from 1988. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. You're right. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. I can't read my own hand rotor. Boy, I wrote this late at night. I can't read my own writing, but now I can. (laughs) Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Christy really getting under her stepmom's skin.
0: Very nice. Uh, Lindsay Wilkins of Dark Glasses, the new Dario Argento film. The best dogs go for the throat.
1: (laughs) Mookie reviews the original The Fog, uh, noting that it's a first-time viewing Glowing Fog brings stabby ghosts. Happy Centennial.
0: <laughs> stabby ghosts are my favorite kinds of ghosts. Um, our very own Adam Risky of Hostel 2005. Why I avoid World Showcase at Epcot.
1: <laughs> Friend of the site, Mac McIntyre, reviews The Night Key from 1937, a, a true obscurity, yeah, by I don't saying... Know that one. Say that again? I don't know that one. Uh, Not many people will. In fact, after I read his review, I have a comment. The Night Key from 1937. The blood-curdling terror of rival security company. (laughs) In the late 30s, Universal and other movie studios were getting a lot of pushback against horror films, which in in the early 30s were pre-code and were pretty nasty. And England was thinking about banning them. So you see universal sort of dialing down the terror and you see Paramount specifically doing these sort of hybrid horror films where, Oh, it's a horror film, but it's also a newspaper movie. And there's always a newspaper guy say, what's the doctor have in store for us tonight? Um, and it looks like they're trying to hedge their bets. Um, but that makes the history of horror more interesting. In fact, all the studios stopped making horror films for a couple of years during the England ban. And then Universal started again when they released Frankenstein and um, Dracula on a double feature, which did land off his business nationwide. Right. There we go. We get all those late monster rally films because they were trying to cash in.
0: Nice uh what's my next one uh chris cooper of the woman from 2011 definitely not a typical parent teacher conference
1: you know you're reading all these that almost made my list
0: this is (laughs) proof that we all have the same uh sensibility when it comes to these seven word reviews
1: the same sense of humor jan peters reviews the recent malignant from 2021 and says there's only room for one of us
0: Ah, my next one is a Jan Peters also, From Beyond. No, I mean the other, other hole. (laughs) It was a
1: Jan Peters double feature. Adam O. reviews Dracula, the Hammer Dracula, from 1958. Dracula should invest in some heavier drapes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Damn it, of What Lies Beneath. Harrison, you're only supposed to cheat up. I I swear
1: to God, like Malignant, you and I are now one person. <laughs> Every single one you're reading, I came close to writing down. Michael P. reviews... Um, oh, friend of the site, Michael P. Yeah. reviews Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010. Oof. Springwood is an Elk Grove? No way! And... <laughs> There's a story behind that. Um, The remake, the besotted, useless remake, uh, was partially filmed at the high school where I taught for 33 years. And in fact, I had an opportunity to be in that opening shot. And for some strange reason, I said, Nah, I'm just (laughs) going to go home. (laughs) And so I did. And then eight or ten months later, the movie came out. And it was like... I have never been happy. Yeah,
0: right. Dodged the bullet. Go back
1: two hours of
0: my life. My <laughs> God, I could have been in that. Oof. Uh, runaway duel rig of scarecrows. For these mercenaries, it's the last straw. Oh, I saw that one coming from a mile away. <laughs> Rocco
1: T. Thompson reviews The Awakening from 1980 and says almost worth it for Heston Mummy Punch.
0: You'll Louis, know what he's talking about if you've seen the movie. Uh, Louis VilJean of X from this year. Lack of porkin leads to a forkin. <laughs> you know, I was very
1: surprised, <coughs> and maybe I shouldn't be, about how many people are doing the rhyming thing this year, and specifically how many people are doing the alliteration thing. That maybe For, the, for a few years, we, we would do always do The rhyming read... thing less, and the alliteration thing a lot
0: less. For a few years, we were always reading the alliterative ones, and I think Uh, people were like, well, this is how to get my review read. That's my ticket to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Um, Frank Levesque reviews Texas Chainsaw from 2013 and says, why you kill all those people? (laughs)
0: Because. My next one is also a Frank Levesque. I like that we're on parallel lines of thinking here. The House on Sorority Row. All good practical jokes involve a gun.
1: <laughs> that was true when I was in college. A <laughs> uh, friend of the site, Grant Herlbert, uh who, lovely man, did the art for my birthday t-shirt. Yeah. Year, and, who and came out to you, see Zombie, yeah. Who joined you for Zombie. It was so wonderful to see that happening. He has reviewed Exorcist II, The Heretic, you know, the film that's eventually coming as a commentary track on it. And his review is give the kids what they want. Locusts.
0: <laughs> also true of a uh, Jurassic world. Dominion. Is that what the most recent one is called? Yes. Okay. A lot of locusts in that one. Uh, I have another Frank Levesque of the, Poughke- the Poughkeepsie tapes. Damn it, thought these were Pew's keepsy tapes.
1: <laughs> Jeremy Wickett <clears throat> reviews the original Universal Frankenstein from 1931 and says, the original um, fuck-around-find-out story.
0: <laughs> I love. Reed Strickland of Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2. Watch Carrie and Exorcist trailers make movie.
1: Aaron Keith reviews the original night of the living dead from 1968 and writes Barbara more useful. If nailed to window.
0: (laughs) Uh, Lauren B of death dream from 1974. This is why moisturizing is really important.
1: (laughs) Someone named Jan Batig Hmm. uh, reviews the original arsenic and old lace from 1944 and writes, Grant rants as sweet ants decant. Charge! Nice. So get that last bit if you've That's, seen the film. As but again, as I there's, watch it. there's the alliteration, but in this case, it's in the hands
0: of a real poet. <laughs> uh, this is my last one. Mac McIntyre of Raw from 2016. What exactly is going on in France?
1: <laughs> and proof that we're on the same wavelength, I have one left as well so we actually chose as many as the other and uh i gotta say i love this one with all my dark little heart tj Mackey reviews misery from 1990 and writes warning hobbling may cause one to cock a (laughs) duty
0: these are very funny we still have uh just under a week left in scary movie month please keep it up uh, thank you once again to Miko Vinica for counting these every day. He's been keeping count. If you follow him on Twitter, he's posting the count and uh, has been responsible for, like, closing the thread each day. And it is an invaluable task that we so appreciate. So thank you again to Miko. Keep it up. Jay bones have you seen anything scary lately?
1: Well, let's see. Uh, the other night I saw Arsenic and Old Lace. But by the time this podcast is posted, everyone will have read my thoughts on that little gem uh, from my column. And um, obviously, I've been trying to wait. I have it right here. Mm -hmm. I have it written on little post-it notes. All my little scary movies that I have to write seven-word reviews for Uh, Joe bag, Joe Bob, Joe bag, you know, Joe bag. (laughs) I keep that in my Joe bag, you know, with my weed. Um, Joe Bob was back Friday night uh, with his uh, Halloween special. And it was very delightful uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, He had Elvira on as his guest and one wishes that he had just sat and talked with her for an hour and a half, rather than showing Elvira's haunted hills, which is a mixed bag. But then, he showed popcorn, which I had never seen. Oh, okay. And has this storied history, and it's yeah. about murder at a horror marathon. Yeah. And, like, how the hell did I never see this before? <laughs> um, but it also involves Bob Clark, who, besides making Porky's, also made Black Christmas. And Patrick's favorite and my favorite, Alan Ormsby, <laughs> who uh, once made a film called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things which Mm. we saw that at a massacre, right?
0: We sure did. It was like a a. 4am movie or something like that. It was
1: so, um, actually, uh, production problems on popcorn, uh, broke the two friends up and Clark and Ormsby never talked to each other again after that. But, uh, popcorn had eluded me and, um, my God, there's a lot going on in that movie. You could, you could actually argue there's too much going on in that movie because, um, You could have a fine film just about terror at a horror marathon. In fact, Bava did it with demons. And um, you could also have the other story of Popcorn be the whole movie. So it's sort of two, two, two movies in one. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, This is my last time on the podcast for Scary Movie uh, Month. And I would like to suggest that if you have not seen the delightful little Looney Tunes spooktacular. Oh, yeah, very that's nice. That's on HBO Max now. Every person who eventually sits down to watch it either tweets or sends me a message that I was right, ignoring the fact that I'm always right. Um, it's delightful, and you should watch it with all the young people. Um,
0: how Do you know how long it
1: runs? It's
0: 28 minutes.
1: Oh, okay. So it won't even take up your entire evening. It's... Short and sweet, and like I said, um, I'm not prone uh, to laughing, but um, it made me laugh out loud. And uh, courtesy of TCM Fathom Events, I saw Scream 2 in a theater for, I believe, what was the first time since I saw it the weekend it opened. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it a second time. And in the words of one Patrick Bromley... Mm you can see the different color strip pages (laughs) because the first half is very clever and is sort of taking down sequels and it's very meta and it's, I think it's very, very interesting. And then it, it almost exactly the midway point, it just falls apart and becomes another film where Kevin Williamson is bending over backwards to trick you in the honest way he did in the first one. But you know you can't reheat a soufflé it's very hard to come up with a second ending that's as good as the ending of psycho and so it's a bunch of nonsense about who done it but um for the first 45 minutes i was like i don't remember this being so good and then for the last 45 minutes i realized why i hadn't seen it in 27 years
0: <clears throat> i don't uh i don't remember if we talked about this on our craven craven or not i feel like the whole ending had to be rewritten because the pages did leak. Uh, the The original ending of the film, which I don't remember what it was supposed to be, but I think it was supposed to end differently. And then it got out. And so they had to hastily rewrite the whole thing. Uh, that
1: fact is all over the film, I think. And um, because I had only seen it once, I had this really weird feeling while I was watching it in the theater about a week ago that I kept forgetting it was 27 years old because I it was in some nether region that didn't age because I hadn't kept up with it and watched it every 10 years or something. And then, so for most of the film, besides enjoying the first half, I kept thinking, "Boy, everyone looks so young. (laughs) Why does everyone look so young?" Look at Lev Schreiber. Oh, because this was made 27 years ago. It was very strange. But it did keep me entertained during the second half.
0: I had heard, I think, some negative things about the quality of the Fathom Events screening. But how was it? Because they're real hit or miss.
1: Those are um, hit or miss. uh, Someone either on our website or on Twitter who worked at a theater explained why Fathom event screenings are so odd. Um, I found that when it's the TCM monthly screening, the quality is largely better. And of course you get the little trivia quiz before the show and you have Ben Mankiewicz weighing in, which is nice. But on other ones, And Adam Risky and I text each other about this all the time. Um, The screening is sometimes late. And then someone in the theater volunteers to go in the lobby and tell the manager. And then you are greeted with the DVD player menu. Okay. This is good. That actually happened at Dr. No. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I have a brand new TV at home and I own this on Blu-ray. I don't think I have it on 4K yet, but it's like, you know, can you give me something? Maybe if they had like given me some sort of souvenir, like a like a souvenir doctor, no spear gun or something (laughs) or a little a little action figure of Joseph Wiseman. And when you squeeze his belly, he says, stupid policeman. Um, But yeah, uh, Fathom Events is hit or miss. I've found that the ones with TCM's stamp on them are largely
0: a little bit better. And Scream 2 was a TCM one?
1: No, it was not.
0: It was not. Okay. Okay.
1: No. And I think um, Mike Pomero went to the Mummy slash Bride of Frankenstein. I believe you're right. I was interested to hear from him what he thought of that because I actually missed
0: that. It was
1: a horrible thing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um anything else that you want to mention
1: no Okay. I, I think not i was very busy watching these eight hammer films
0: yeah me too and 11 fucking hellraiser movies so and that's uh, next week right that's next week right. that'll be on halloween um so i don't have a ton to talk about um I've been watching a bunch of – last week Rob and I did a show on Nina Forever, which is a Dread Central title, and I realized there were a bunch of Dread Central – I was keeping up with them for a long time in terms of what they were acquiring and distributing, and I had lapsed and hadn't seen a bunch of their more recent stuff, so all of it is available for free with ads on Vudu, their entire catalog. So I've been going through and watching some of their movies – Uh, There's two quick ones that I'll recommend. One is called Ditched, which is about a group of paramedics and police officers who are besieged by what appears to be a cult on the side of the road. Uh, There's some good gore gags, and it's just a a decent 80-minute little horror movie. Um, And then another one is called Midnight, which is a Korean film about a, a... deaf mute woman who witnesses a murder, or not even a murder, a stabbing, I should say, and then is pursued. Uh, And it keeps going in directions that you don't anticipate, because we've seen that movie a bunch of times, but this one does some different things with the formula, and I think it's worth seeing. Um, And then the only other movie that I'll really talk about is the Big Shudder premiere from last week which was uh, VHS 99.
1: I saw the trailer for that.
0: Yeah. Um, you and I did podcasts on the first two VHS movies. I remember. Yeah. And then there because were, because it
1: was, it was, it was uh, Patrick Bromley saying, let's have JB go outside his comfort zone.
0: <laughs> it worked out. There's some good stuff in those movies.
1: Oh, I agree. I yeah. agree completely. In fact, Watching the trailer, if you've seen the other VHS movies, it's pretty easy to kind of ferret out what the segments are.
0: Yeah. There's been two since then. Um, And then – so there was VHS Viral, which is probably my least favorite. And then VHS 94, I believe, which came out last year. And VHS 99, like pretty much all of the VHS movies – is a mixed bag. Like almost every anthology ever released. Uh, it's got, I would say two really strong segments and then three <laughs> that are like, okay, you know, that's the formula. Yeah. It's a little frustrating that every, because of this whole VHS format, <clears throat> every filmmaker kind of does the same thing, which is like whenever things get really intense and, or are supposed to be scary Something goes wrong with the camera, the tracking Mm. gets, you know what I mean? They do that trick where they're obscuring what you can see by fucking with the technology. And it's like, you could do that once in one segment, but to do it over and over again in every segment grows kind of tiresome. Having said that, I liked the Johannes Roberts segment and the Joseph and Vanessa Winter segment, which closes out the film. Uh and they just made a movie called Deadstream that's also on Shutter that I'm highly recommending.
1: So the other film you were talking about is on Voodoo, and this is V U D U. Correct. So Voodoo <clears throat> is now not just a depository for digital movies that you buy um and want to stream because you know when you get the digital code yeah. and you can throw it onto iTunes or yeah. the movies anywhere. Yeah. One thing that I've ever bought would only let me put it on voodoo. So I have a voodoo account for all the episodes of the original Batman TV show. Okay. And that's the only thing in (laughs) voodoo. Now, you're saying that I can turn on the voodoo. Only if you call it the (laughs) voodoo. And there will be choices available to me, which is to watch a movie with ads. Correct. Okay. Well, this, this means I should check out voodoo. Cause when I moved, I dropped some of the streaming services I was subscribing to. And with one exception, I really don't miss them. Yeah. And I'm trying to streamline a little bit. You know, you want to get it down to an even $800 a month. <laughs> you really don't want to go, over that threshold
0: for streaming services, um, but yeah, there's a, so there's a weird phenomenon. What's the one that you miss, by the way? The one streaming um, service that you miss.
1: The minute I dropped uh, the Netflix machine, <clears throat> they started posting things I actually wanted to watch. I see this as deliberate and specifically. I know Netflix is a nationwide concern, but they're specifically targeting me. The other funny thing is, ever since I dropped it, on a weekly basis, they send me an email trying to romance me back. <laughs> and every week, the the price goes down. It's like, hey, how about $9.99 a month? Would that get you back, Tiger? <laughs> And then once they sent me an email that just said, you up, <laughs> which my younger friends explained to me, um, but I have not uh, succumbed. I have not resubscribed. I'm trying to go cold turkey. And um, of course, that led to my Munsters adventure, right. because if I had maintained my subscription
0: to Netflix, watching the Rob Zombie Munsters movie
1: would have been much easier
0: (laughs) this is a very weird phenomenon and then we'll talk about hammer but uh i typically was watching these voodoo movies through my smart tv you know it has all these apps and there's a voodoo app so i just watch it through there uh and there's ads but it's like they're 19 seconds long it's a it's a commercial for something that's been streaming for a year Uh, The other day, it was The Last Duel. Every time there was a commercial, it was for The Last Duel, stream it on Vudu. It's like, okay, great. Then yesterday, it wasn't working, my Vudu app on my smart TV. So I switched over to my Roku to continue watching the movie. When I watch Vudu through my Roku, there's more commercials. The breaks last about three minutes each. Um, I don't know why that is, but if you have the option, I recommend watching it through the TV and bypass the Roku.
1: That's wild because the phenomenon I'm about to describe, I compare to, and you're much more the scholar of Stephen King than I am, but there is a moment in the book of it where there's a character hiding in the bushes and they have a flashback. And within the flashback, there's another flashback. And the first time I read the book, I was like, well, that's interesting. I've never seen anyone do that in a book because eventually if you do a flashback within a flashback, you have to sort of reel them all in. Right. And I compared it to a frog's tongue going out to get a fly. But on the end of this frog's tongue, there's another frog's tongue. Right. And at the end of that frog's tongue, there's a little frog's tongue. So I have a smart TV with apps. But to get spectrum cable TV in my bedroom, I need an Apple TV 4K. And on the Apple TV 4K, you can also download the same apps. So just like you're saying with your Roku, I can do these apps from the smart TV, all except spectrum, or I can go to another input, which is the Apple 4K and stream the exact same apps. Yeah. I have a feeling that through the Apple TV, the the picture quality is better. At right. least that's what I've observed so far. But obviously, the day will come when on the Apple TV 4K, there will be another thing <laughs> that will let me go in. Do you see where this is? Oh, near? yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, they will find me dead holding the remote. <laughs> With a smile plastered on my frozen on my face, and they'll look at the TV and they'll say, "Wait a minute, this TV has never worked. It's not plugged in. <laughs> and that will be a segment in VHS 2023. Thank you very much.:
0: Very nice. They are already and making another scene. They're making another VHS mo- movie.: Oh, of course they are. Set in the '80s. Anyway, let's Um, talk about... Oh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Actually, the trailer in your description makes me want to see VHS 99.
0: Yeah, I recommend it. Um, I thought about just showing one segment during Scary Movie Night, because we did that one year. We watched the cult one from VHS 2. The the good one. The best one ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Hammer... uh, What do we call them? Loose Ends. That's right. Hammer, Loose Ends. Eight Hammer Hammer movies. In
1: 1957, Hammer... Um, makes a little film called Frankenstein, which in the rest of the world is called Curse of Frankenstein to appease Universal Studios. And it's an international sensation. And when you make money, apparently you should go back and do the exact same thing. If people like your canned beans, you should continue to can beans and (laughs) sell them because people like beans. So they make Horror of Dracula in 1958, which is even a bigger sensation than the Frankenstein film. And we're off to the races. So The Mummy, which is the first film we watched for The Loose End Show,
0: mm-hmm.
1: comes out in 1959. And you can see that they're following the universal playbook. Mm-hmm. That they're, this is sort of pre-sold and people like The Mummy story. But I thought what was interesting, watching The Hammer Mummy, because I hadn't seen it in a real long time, is that... While it's the story of the original Universal Mummy, they resort to a trope from all the sequels um, that Universal made in that in the Karloff Mummy, he's the mummy and then off screen he takes off the bandages and he's Imhotep Mm -hmm. and then he causes mischief. But what this leaves you with is a movie that only has a mummy in the first 10 minutes. So the way we get around this is we introduce a second villain um, in most of the universal films. He's called Ardoth Bay and Ardoth Bay is controlling the mummy. And then you get a bad guy who's usually trying to get a girl. And then you have a mummy for the whole film. And I thought it was interesting that um, the hammer film chose to go with that because if anything, I wanted to see Christopher Lee as Ardoth Bay and the mummy clearly those meager special effects were within their hmm. um uh, purview in their budget but another thing that you see hammer doing with the mummy is they're really hedging their bets with what they think is popular because basically in the mummy you get christopher lee as the villain and peter cushing as the hero and it's basically a replay of dracula right just like the universal mummy <laughs> uh follows the dracula template to a t even having scenes that are very very similar
0: yeah this one is a so this was one of the two that i didn't own so i rented this from amazon i had never seen it before it was i think one of two that i had never seen also and um partly because of the month I'm having partly because I, d- we did have to watch eight of these on top of having to watch all these other movies. Like a lot of these, I feel bad washed over me a little bit and not even in a bad way because there's something about hammer that I like having it just wash over me. Um, so I was like, this is a totally competent mummy movie and it's cool to see Christopher Lee playing a mummy. And Peter Cushing is always good. As you pointed out, like never phones it in. Um, um, but I just was sitting there the whole time thinking like there aren't very many really great mummy movies.
1: That's true. And I know whenever you see some sort of documentary or compendium, it's one of those cases where if they're going to show a clip from the mummy, they always show the same damn clip. It's the clip where the mummy comes into the parlor and, um, uh Cushing has a, a a fireplace poker but that's no good and 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 uh, Peter Cushing shoots him a couple times it's the mummy attacking right. Peter Cushing right. that's the only scene you ever see from this mummy i do know that this mummy cost hammer a little bit more than the previous um horror films because they had a built that egypt set oh and at the very beginning when we start on the set it's a Obvious that we're not at the Bray Studios outdoors, which is where we are largely in the Dracula and Frankenstein film, but also the way the camera lingers over the set for the first 10 minutes of the film. It's like, oh, okay, they spent some money on this and they want it to take up some screen time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found myself growing a little impatient during the extended. Flashback with Christopher Lee, which felt – I mean I know part of it is like we have to tell you the origin of the mummy and that's part of every mummy story. But part of it to me smacked of like Christopher Lee being like, hey, would it be cool if I wasn't under bandages for the entire movie and can you find me some screen time where I just get to be Christopher Lee?
1: Right. And what I was saying uh, previously would have solved that if they had just let him play Imhotep and the mummy. My feeling about the flashback, though, was that's one of the scenes that people remember the most from the Karloff version because it's really creepy to imagine having all that nonsense done to you in terms of having your tongue ripped out and being buried alive, which is horrible. And I would say that uh, the screenwriter of The Hammer Mummy Leans into that because the the Christopher Lee version is much gorier and even more suggestive of what they're doing to him to punish him than the Karloff version. Yeah. Um. Specifically when his tongue is cut out, and if I'm remembering correctly, because the Mummy, the Karloff version just came out in 4K, so I watched it again. I believe. I misremembered the Karlov version that when they put them in the the sarcophagus, they throw in uh, scarab beetles. That's not in the Karlov version. I'm sure the production code wouldn't have approved that, but I believe it is in the Lee version. And of course,
0: the the student, most the modern version. Summers of, one right from '99. That really leans into the scarab beetles. They went a, scarab crazy in that as movie as a source of fright um
1: so again just like the hammer frankenstein and dracula you see them taking things that were beloved from the universal films and just sort of amping them up um i do like the mummy is, is it a swamp or is it quicksand i do like the mummy uh trying to make his
0: way through the swamp or the yeah.
1: quicksand or whatever it is and yeah i'm getting caught up i like that
0: yeah i just was sitting there trying to think of like what are the good mummy stories and honestly i still think my favorite and this i know is blasphemy even more than the universal one even more than the hammer one is the 30 minute segment at the beginning of tales from the dark side the movie lot 249 mm-hmm. i think it's called well I, I can see that best movie mummy ever
1: also when the stephen somers version came out he got a lot of credit for this and rightfully so that he suddenly had this inspiration well what if the mummy was a chapter of the indiana jones saga yeah. Discuss. Because one of the problems with any mummy story is that the mummy is sort of shambling and slow. And if you keep your wits about you, it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> we need um Zack Snyder to make a movie where the mummies run, <laughs> where it features multiple running mummies.
0: Speed ramping mummies. And for some reason the dust
1: of, of the ages. Uh, lubricates their way on the road and they're actually, they're they're sliding mummies because it's all downhill. It's all downhill. And some of the mummies are on skateboards. You know, (laughs) you could do that too? And it's very scary when they're fast. (sighs) Release the Snyder Cut with more skateboards. I understand why you found it hard to find the mummy because I'll show you how old the hammer mummy is at least on disc. My copy is still in one of those cardboard cases, and I never got rid of it. And clearly, if Shout Factory's listening, there must be rights issues or something, because that one's due for an upgrade. Um, that one's due to be spiffed up. I mean, come on. What are you waiting for? The other one sold well.
0: Yeah, they did. And they did a bunch of uh, Hammer movies. They did. They have a licensing deal with Warner Brothers, who I think distributes this version of The Mummy. They did. Uh, so I'm not really sure why, because there was a Blu-ray of this Mummy, but it's long out of print. Uh, I would gladly add this to my collection. That's the one I was going to mail to you. Oh, yeah. No, the other one was. Right. And then I I told you I had it.
1: I thought you were... And that was ironic because I wound up having to buy that from Amazon and Mm. wait 24 hours to get it. Sorry to hear that. So then uh, Hammer says, this is a way to make money. And they decide to do a whole string of horror films. Now, before The Mummy, they actually did the first Frankenstein sequel, which is Revenge of Frankenstein, which we talked about uh, two years ago. And then they turned their sights on uh, the Dr. Jekyll story. And I would argue when I first sat down to watch this, I thought, oh, well, this is just going to be a gimmick. But as a connoisseur of horror films, as the film went along, I liked the gimmick more and more. And I thought it was more than a gimmick. In the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll is very hairy and has sort of a deep, scary voice. And, maybe because they're channeling the Jerry Lewis version, the absent-minded professor. Um, Mr. Hyde is smooth and handsome and has a higher voice. And
0: And is named Buddy Love.
1: And is sort of trying to right some wrongs because he's got a two-timing wife and a friend who's a gigolo. And I have to say, the highlight of Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll for me was the Christopher Lee performance. Yeah, for sure. Because he's such a delightful character actor when he doesn't have to carry the film. And he's so gleefully amoral. He's just horrible. But he, he takes such delight in how scandalous his behavior right. is. It's like, oh, Christopher Lee's up for anything in this movie. <laughs> um, but I also like the performance of the lead. I thought uh, the actress who played Jekyll's wife was really good and interesting and if anything and I know you could debate about whether you should just watch a movie for the sets and the costumes this one has really beautiful sets and really beautiful costumes and speaking of character actors uh, I guess when Oliver Reed is a contract player he sometimes shows up as something other than the werewolf and he's in this in a very small part Playing sort of a loudish brute right
0: um yeah we'll get to sets and costumes when we talk about phantom of the opera but uh i had seen this before and wasn't crazy about it so watching it this time it actually improved a lot i don't know why but i was like oh this is very watchable and actually kind of good and i'm with you in that like I didn't think I loved the conceit of making it, doing it nutty professor style where like Dr. Mr. Hyde is very handsome At and the beginning, charming. it seems like a gimmick. Yeah. Well, one of the delights of like, you know, the Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the cool makeup and watching him get more and more repulsive as the movie goes on or even the John Barrymore version, you know, not so much the Spencer Tracy one.
1: The Frederick March version is coming out on Blu-ray next week. I know. I'm very
0: excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I get rid of my double-feature DVD that has the Frederick March and the Spencer Tracy? I still have
1: that too, and that's in a cardboard flipper as well.
0: Or do I hang on to it in the thinking that someday I may want to watch the Spencer Tracy one again?
1: But Warner Archive also put
0: but, but I'm Spencer, not buying the Spencer Tracy on blu rays You're so. not going to buy that as a no. standalone. No, I don't like um, it.
1: Well, at some point after the podcast, we'll have to decide which of us keeps the flipper <laughs> and which of us
0: discards the flipper. Um, So that part was like a letdown, but yeah, watching it this time, I was way more into it. Uh, all the stuff with his wife and, Christopher Lee was pretty great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I had a way better time and I think it helps that like, this was one of the early ones that I watched uh, before I exhausted myself on some of these movies. Um, So I was a lot more game, I think. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really solid.
1: The other thing I thought as I'm watching the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, and at this point, as the films begin to all merge into one meta, <laughs> yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, the climax of Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll
0: features fire, does it not? Uh, that sounds right. Or am I thinking of Curse of the Werewolf?
1: Well, Curse of the Werewolf does too, as does Brides of Dracula. My point <laughs> here is as I'm watching two faces of Dr. Jekyll, let's just say there's a lot of fire at the end. (laughs) There is, it was three weeks ago. I watched this film, um, that hammer starts leaning into the fire and hammer's fire effects are very interesting because you watch and you're like, how did they not endanger the actor? And I know in Brides of Frankenstein, the way they did that was by endangering the actor. (laughs) Um, Peter Cushing was actually very close to the flames when he filmed the climactic sequence, but it made me wonder if the actors in hammers films had this stiff upper lip, let's get through it attitude. And hammer realized that a lot of fire was one of the cheapest special effects you could muster. You, we buy some kerosene and we set everything alight and you know, and then we don't even have to break down the sets because they're reduced to ash. Um, That fire really becomes something that uh, travels in a lot of the Hammer films. And I had a feeling, unless I'm misremembering Revenge of Frankenstein, that Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll might have started that. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, And now, how did you watch this? Do you have that Echo Bridge double feature, or did this come from that massive set that they put out? Or Mill Creek, not Echo Bridge.
1: The massive set. Okay. that, That, you know, thank... Thank the Lord I bought all these things, because as you go picking around, you find out, well, I have three copies of the Gorgon, but no copy of Plague of the Zombies. Thank you, Shout Factory. Uh, so in terms of Hammer history, yeah. um, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll um, is not a very big success. Um, it is a disappointment for Hammer. And so when they go back to the well they think, well, we'll do Dracula again. We already did Frankenstein again, but Christopher Lee is either unavailable or doesn't want to repeat the part. And so we get the curious brides of Dracula, which we've talked about, which has Cushing, but not Lee. And I would maintain it's one of the best hammer Dracula uh, vampire films. I think we discussed this last year. Um,
0: Clearly, one wishes that lee were in it i think it would hands down be the best it's and like if, again if in Under... brides of
1: dracula spoiler alert you see the screenwriter trying to top the incredible climax of horror of dracula by coming up with something even more crazy and i would argue succeeding i won't give it away but uh, brides of dracula is a success and so in 1961 They decide to make Curse of the Werewolf. And if you have that disc, watch the supplementary materials because it's fascinating how this film came to be because they proposed the werewolf film and the England production office had big problems with it. And um, they said, no, you're not doing this. And they had read the script and the script was even more violent and they had problems with it. So Hammer decided to make another film and built that set and then decided to make Curse of the Werewolf, which is why this Curse of the Werewolf takes place in Spain because they had built the set, even though it's based on a book called the Werewolf of Paris.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And we have talked about Curse of the Werewolf before. I think, originally because it was shown at a massacre and it's come up again and again because I think it's safe to say we are split on this film
0: no, I like it. I mean, this is one of the Hammer movies I've probably seen the most because I've actually seen it theatrically a couple of times. Toy John used to show it a lot. Yeah. Saw it at the massacre. Have watched it on my own a handful of times. And Ghoulie shows it all the time. So I, I've encountered Curse of the Werewolf probably more than almost any other Hammer movie. And once and you've I have get... seen the trailer 68 times. The curse <laughs> it... was put on a baby. It was laid on a baby. And the moon, the fall moon. Um, yes, I like this movie once I can get past, like, it's an hour before Oliver Reed shows up and another 20 minutes before we get a werewolf.
1: It's one of the best examples in film I've ever seen of asking someone what time it is <laughs> and they tell you how to make a clock. I don't need to start with the great-grandfather of the werewolf. (laughs) It reminds me of back in my teaching days, no matter what the writing assignment was, freshmen would start the essay with waking up, (laughs) as if you could not describe anything that happened in a day without properly starting at the beginning of the day. Of course not. But I would argue... That while all that is true, and it's a long slog to get to Oliver Reed, and it's a long slog to get to the to the werewolf. Um, once you get there, it's worth it. And it's it, not like the first hour is disposable, right? It just, it's just window dressing for the eventual, you know, main attraction.
0: Well, and it's super entertaining, even. Um, before we get to Oliver Reed or whatever, all that stuff with the, I guess he's the Marquis, like that yeah. guy's performance. I don't remember the actor's name, but like he's having such a good time playing the worst person alive that all that stuff is super enjoyable and entertaining. It's just if you paid to see a werewolf movie, you're kind of wondering where your money went.
1: And I can still remember, I'm guessing, because I'm still living in Bellwood, Bellwood, Illinois, Mm. nightlife capital of the Midwest, um, that I'm about eight and I'm watching this on the ABC 330 movie. And because I'm eight, I don't understand a lot of things. But I still remember all the stuff in the jail. Even at eight, I was like, no, this is messed up. (laughs) Why are they... Why are they putting the pretty lady in the jail cell with that, you know? Um, So this film imprinted on me at a young age. I have to say, um, Oliver Reed sort of proves in this why he would later become this movie star, because he brings it. I mean, he's certainly the opposite of phoning it in. And um, although I would argue that Hammer's makeup person will sometimes run hot and cold. This is one of the, this is one of the iconic werewolves of the movies. I mean, yeah, for sure, a really great makeup and suit.
0: If um, only there was more of it,
1: which is, which is great because, um, you know, he's got that big chest piece covering him with the gray hair and stuff. And that makes it much easier for the stunt man, uh, who plays him in quite a few shots in, in the climax of the film, to um, adequately double for him. Uh, this film had massive censorship problems in England. And as the two gentlemen on the audio commentary point out, the version that was released in a, in the United States, completely uncut, no problem, no controversy, basically released with a G rating, um, is cut to ribbons in England to the point where the the narrative is incoherent. Oh, wow. And the one shot they really had a problem with is up in the bell tower when the werewolf is shot, you actually see the wound spurt blood. Oh, we, we can't have that in 1961. We don't want JB, who won't be born for another year and never visit England, to be too
0: scared. <laughs> Uh, It makes me wish that Hammer did more werewolf movies, but I'm glad if they only got one bite at the apple that it was this one.
1: Right. If anything, they should have judiciously trimmed the first hour and to get us to Oliver Reed a little quicker. I don't think that would have been that difficult, but what can you do? It is what it is. And then it's 1962 and two things happen. I'm born because I wanted to be born. Right. And Hammer makes Phantom of the Opera and that's a fascinating story too because Cary Grant approached Hammer and said he would love to be in a horror film and I have a theory about this Cary Grant appeared in a bunch of Hitchcock movies and Cary Grant had just noticed Hitchcock uh, become a multi-millionaire with Psycho I think Cary Grant was impressed by the fact that with a low budget and Hammer was known for its low budgets. With a low budget horror film, you could clean up. So why not go to England, appear in a low budget horror film, agree to star in it for 10% instead of your usual salary, and clean up. And Hammer thought if they were able to get Cary Grant, it should be some sort of prestige right. production. And maybe he wouldn't play the monster. Maybe he would play the second lead. He would play the monster hunter. And so if you're looking at prestige horror, you have to go back to Phantom of the Opera. Uh, The Claude Rains universal version is such prestige horror. It's practically not a horror film. (laughs) Uh, So that'll work perfectly. And in fact, I don't think Cary Grant was ever slated um, to play Eric. I think he was supposed to play the, the gentleman who tries to put things right the the romantically
0: raul in the musical i don't remember what they name him in the hammer film
1: and obviously cary grant drops out pretty early but even without cary grant let's go ahead and because they want eric to be sympathetic in this version they introduce this dubious trope that eric has a little friend uh this troll who not only rescued him but who is actually committing all the mayhem. So you don't have the moral ambiguity of being on Eric's side when he drops a chandelier on a couple hundred people, <laughs> which is very strange. And I always wondered why that was. I thought this version started the trope of um, Eric being this uh, musician who was betrayed and in trying to get his music back scars himself, but as it turns out, that that originated in the Claude Rains version in the book and the Lon Chaney version. It's never explained why Eric right. looks that way. Right. He's simply grotesque. Right. And he loves music. Discuss. Um, so it's interesting that they're sort of picking and choosing from the different versions and also trying to make Eric sympathetic. This version what most people call the Herbert Lom version is the version I grew up with. I think I've seen this film a hundred times. It was a mainstay on television. Every time it was on, I watched it. Um, The production values are amazing considering what they spent. Um, Specifically that set of Eric's lair where it's all full of water and things. And if you listen to the audio commentary on the disc, Hammer didn't think it was worth it to warm that up. (laughs) <laughs> it was freezing oh no and the actor who plays the character we're talking about the the protagonist yep. the romantic yep. lead the, the handsome guy um, was still alive when they produced the disc and so he narrates the making of featurette and his memories are used in it because he was there and he said when they were making it he suspected they waited until the last day to put him in the water because they were afraid he would get really, really sick and then be unavailable. So let's make that the last shot so the actor can handle pneumonia on his own and <laughs> we're free to finish our picture. And he, he honestly believes that because he said he has never been colder.
0: Yikes. This is a real sets and costumes situation for me. Like, it's great to look at, but I, it's not one of my favorite tellings of Phantom of the Opera. Um, it's again, like Hammer, like Universal is great. Like, it's like a blanket. It's 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 comforting. So just having it on, I can vibe with even this version of Phantom of the Opera but I would probably put it in the lower half of the eight movies that we're talking about.
1: Much like the mummy when *Phantom of the opera is talked about on a television show or a documentary, phantom also falls prey to there's only one scene from this film we will ever show in clip form. And that's the scene where the woman is singing and the flat is cut and the stage hand swings down on the noose. Oh, that's a popular (laughs) got to show when we're discussing Hammer Horror. And I think that pretty much encapsulates Phantom of the Opera. I'll admit it's not the best version of the story, but I hold it close to my heart because eight-year-old Johnny really liked it. Totally
0: understandable. When
1: it was 1970 and he was watching it on a black and white TV in the basement. Think about that. I, I don't think... I don't think I saw Phantom of the Opera in color until the late seventies. Wow, that's
0: half of the appeal. I
1: would argue. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But I was there because um, Eric was a misunderstood genius, and at eight, I really empathized with that <laughs> because <laughs> when I was eight, I felt I was an um, <laughs> I was a misunderstood genius but my parents wouldn't listen to me. Mm. But to mom, sleep. why don't you go out and play? Why are you always sitting around the house reading books? But mom, I'm a misunderstood genius. <laughs> How? <laughs> Stop hitting me. Don't hit misunderstood geniuses. <laughs> okay.
0: um, next is uh, The Gorgon from 1964. And The Gorgon is the blueprint
1: for how you should make what I began to call in my mind, the detective hammer films that there's a mystery and the mystery has to be solved. And I thought the Gorgon was really, really entertaining for a number of reasons. And one of them is because Lee and Cushing are both in it Yeah. Both sort of playing against type, although you can argue that that Cushing is channeling Dr. Frankenstein. But I really, really like the Lee character because Lee is sort of channel uh, channeling Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. He's trying to figure the whole thing out. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought it was massively entertaining and not to jump. uh, Channels here, but. It seemed to me that Plague of the Zombies was trying the same thing. We have to figure out what this mystery is. And failing. So Gorgon and Plague of the Zombies are two sides of the same coin. Here's how to do it right. And I'm not exactly sure beyond the casting what the Gorgon does to get it right. Maybe it's the script. But Plague of the Zombies features neither Cushing nor Lee. Right. And... Um... Plague of the zombies was the one that I found it the hardest to get through.
0: Yeah. Me too. Because it's, it's like a, it's a real like mention of the zombies situation. <laughs> uh, I think part of it is part of the special sauce. I think for the Gorgon is Terrence Fisher directing. Yeah. Uh, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Plague of the zombies was my least favorite and again it's interesting to see here's a period where hammer has kind of already done all of the classics they've put their spin on basically everything they've now done the mummy and dr jekyll and mr hyde and the wolfman and phantom of the opera lots of dracula lots of frankenstein so what's left well i don't know and they're kind of plumbing the depths for let's do a zombie movie let's do a gorgon movie um I think they have much greater success with the Gorgon uh which is a, a a real gem I think in the Hammer catalog and Plague of the Zombies for me was the low point.
1: And for the first half as you mentioned I think Plague of the Zombies suffers from the same problem as um, Curse of the Werewolf, and yeah. that for the first half of Plague of the Zombies, it's Plague of the Bros. Mm-hmm. Because we keep getting those fox hunting jackasses. <laughs> um and while it's later explained that they're the bad guys' army, it's it's not the same. And you get all the same trappings of Hammer, of course, the sets and the costumes and the performances and, and such. Which leads you to believe that you're gonna get the other half. Right. But in the Gorgon, you get it. Yeah. And 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 I think you put your finger on it. It's it's Christopher Lee, it's Peter Cushing, and it's Terrence uh vision directing. And then in Plague of the Zombies, you don't get it. I'm not telling people to avoid Plague of the Zombies at all cost. Um there's a lot of people who really like the zombie design. They like the zombie I can makeup see that. at the end. Um, In fact, it's become an action figure recently, um, finally. But um, I'm not saying avoid Plague of the Zombies, but I'm saying avoid Plague of the Zombies like the plague.
0: (laughs) It is a bummer that this is the one that you had to uh, buy.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering what to do with the disc now. I have several (laughs) thoughts. And you can almost see... That Plague of the Zombies does not do well at the box office, so instantly Hammer goes back to the well and quickly makes Dracula Prince of Darkness, Frankenstein Created Woman, Dracula has risen from the grave, Frankenstein must be destroyed. What do these films have
0: in common? It's all, from here on out, it's all vampires and Frankenstein.
1: Which is interesting because, well, first of all, this has got a little asterisk next to it. They did attempt the Dr. Jekyll story a second time. I believe that film is called I, Monster. And it stars Christopher Lee, and I've only seen it once. Yeah, I've never seen
0: it, but that sounds right. It
1: is a variation on on the Jekyll and Hyde story. And I wonder why, actually something just occurred to me that it would explain why, why didn't Hammer ever tackle the Invisible Man?
0: What is the answer that just occurred to you? My theory? Um,
1: special effects that were beyond their ken and
0: or very expensive. Okay. Yeah, I guess. I mean, part of the Unless
1: in the first scene, uh the invisible <clears throat> man sets fire to everything. <laughs> and
0: part and of then the Part of the whole ethos of Hammer is like, well, we can do it either more lavishly or we can bring more, you know, sex and violence to it. And maybe they just couldn't with The Invisible Man. Maybe it was too tough a nut to crack for them.
1: And speaking of sex and violence, Patrick.
0: Oh, we're getting to my favorite period of Hammer now. We now start the long downhill slide. <laughs> I love it. That
1: brings us to... Uh, martial arts films and <laughs> not, naked, not the best and naked female breasts vampire <laughs> lovers from 1970 and i had not seen this film in a really long time and i think 60 year old jb reacts very different than 18 year old jb because this film is beloved largely for one scene sure and upon this re-watching I thought that scene was so out of character with the rest of the film. It's so odd and that the film would benefit by not having it.
0: Okay. Interesting. It's the,
1: it's the definition of um gratuitous. Right. And it reminds me of a story that at a horror con once, someone asked Peter Cushing about one of these really salacious scenes in one of the later films, and Cushing laughed and said, oh, my dear boy, I wasn't there that day.
0: (laughs) Peter Cushing rules. I am a big Vampire Lovers fan, admittedly. Um, I wasn't a big... I I feel like the 70s is... uh, I wouldn't have predicted that the seventies was my period for hammer because they were sort of on their last legs and trying whatever they could to stay relevant. And that was being more sexual and more violent. But I remember even doing Frankenstein from a couple of years ago. I think the standout for me that I didn't realize was Frankenstein and the monster for or Frankenstein versus the monster from hell, Frankenstein and the monster from hell. What the hell is it's
1: the latter? But I had the, I had the same reaction. it, they were actually trying something new vampire lovers. It seems, and I don't think this was intentional vampire lovers. I think this kicks in with twins of evil that it's almost like they're trying to um, start their own subset based on these Carmilla novels. And it's the Karnstein trilogy. It's what's called the Karnstein trilogy. And I'm all for that. Um, I love vampire lovers, but it's this, it's this very handsome hammer female vampire movie with this cinemax scene cut into the middle of it. That's just Hey, we we convinced the two of them to do nudity. Let's go.
0: I think Close Ingrid, the set. Ingrid Pitt is so great in this movie, and Madeline Smith's performance I love because it's like a duck that has just been born that is yeah. just figuring out the world. She's so just wide-eyed and clueless. Uh, it's I find it very entertaining.
1: And the one thing I did um, glom from the audio commentary, and the audio commentaries on the Shout Factory special editions are superb. They really got the right people to talk about these films, is that one of the commentators had interviewed Ingrid Pitt about her performance in The Vampire Lovers. And Ingrid Pitt said, the thing that she kept in her mind throughout the entire film is that when she was dealing with humans, she looked at them as like, they were chickens. They're food. That's all they are. They're food. And I thought that was fascinating. I love the voice that she brings to it. I love Mm -hmm. the bearing that she brings to it. Um, It's got a super climax. That's
0: really full
1: of different things going on. And it's really spooky. And I would say, um, my love of vampire lovers also spills over to twins of evil, which is the second of the Karnstein trilogy. And um, while it's not quite as good as vampire lovers, there's so many interesting things going on in twins of evil, not the least the performance by the twins, but also um, that we start with um, Cushing playing someone who's really reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And then, the film actually gets into shades of gray with moral ambiguity because someone else shows up that sort of reveals Cushing to be the hero. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen very often in horror films that we get something that's a little bit borderline because um, for the first 20 minutes, Cushing represents everything we hate in religious bigotry. Right. Until someone shows up who might need a religious to, 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 to combat against. Um, One thing I think is a um, one quibble I have with twins of evil is that Cushing is such a strong actor that the actor that they got to play show me the evils of the world. There's no way he can outact Cushing. So it's sort of a fixed fight.
0: I, this was the last one that I watched. Um, and my last one too, I was kind of dreading it to be honest. Cause I had seen it once before and I was real indifferent on it. So I was like, all right, I got one more of these goddamn movies to get to. And then I watched it and this of all of them was the one that really popped for me and like rose in my estimation where I was like, Oh, this movie's terrific. This is so much fun. Uh, And again, not just because they amped up the sex and violence, but it's just, it's a lot of what I love about vampire lovers brought to another movie. I remember a very funny story of you seeing this at a massacre, either very late at night or very early in the morning. And when one of the twins finally gets topless, someone in the audience, like, desperately cried out, finally, (laughs) which makes me very sad for that person. But uh, I I really, really liked Twins of Evil this time.
1: Um, as did I. I think I've probably only seen Twins of Evil maybe two times in the past. And if anything, this is like this bold experiment that we've just conducted over the last three years for Hammer Films is like going to a gourmet restaurant and having the tasting menu. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we watch Twins of Evil and Vampire Lovers very close to Plague of the Zombies only serves to show us how much better Vampire Lovers and Twins of Evil are from Plague of the Zombies because we were tasting them in close proximity to to the other. Oh, I always gave Plague of the Zombies a free pass, but it gave me indigestion. (laughs) And Twins of Evil... was was delightful and had a bouquet. I don't know. I'm extending past the food metaphors, but um, I would say of this Hammer viewing, the Gorgon and Twins of Evil really rose in my estimation, Mm -hmm. and I think maybe it was because I was watching them all in a row. But again, as I texted you, they should have given Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing more money. I know these films were made on a budget, but if Cushing and or Lee is in the film, it's a it's automatically better. Right. It's just right. The, the game that they bring, even though I think Lee very quickly begins to devalue uh, the Hammer films and it gets down to his agent negotiating how many days he would be on the set. And, oh, it's much easier if Dracula doesn't talk and that that doesn't do the performance any favors. Um, The other thing I was thinking, and I I think I brought this up two years ago when we were talking about Frankenstein, is Peter Cushing famously during interviews said that he loved props. He loved being given props. And all the movies we watched for this podcast where Cushing is in them, you see that (laughs) it almost it almost starts to seem as if it was part of his contract. I must be given something to open. I must be given something to hold. I must be given something to, to play around with in my hands. I mean, it's in all of his films. And he's right. It makes, it makes the film more interesting. It makes his performance more interesting. Because what is our day other than manipulating things? Right, right now, I'm playing with my phone to look at the list. I have a delightful uh, cup of liquid death. Uh, Mango Chainsaw. They have special flavors for Halloween this year, uh, including Severed Lime. And um, I'm playing with my USB mic. So now I'm channeling Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing, R.I.P., in that I'm playing with the props on my desk.
0: He's still alive. I saw him in Rogue One.
1: Oh. (laughs) At that point, (laughs) we hear the sound of a can of worms opening Oh, my Lord. Is the
0: third movie in the Karnstein trilogy Vampire Circus? Yes, it is. Which I've never seen, and Adam just told me I really need to see that one because he's a big fan of it.
1: And I haven't seen it in decades, and I'm wondering if it's part of that massive box. It's not.
0: It's one of those Synapse titles, like Twins of Evil.
1: See, I thought that I was just going to go to Amazon and rent Plague of the Zombies, but that's one of the few that's not available to rent on Amazon. Um, If I could go back in a time machine, I would have Hammer release all of their films through the same American distributor. For sure. Imagine the box sets we would now be enjoying if they had released every single one through Warner Brothers. Don't mess around with 20th century don't mess around with Seven Arts. Don't mess around with no no Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers.
0: Yeah, we're having to piecemeal. In fact, the they released meal. a couple
1: through Universal.
0: Yeah, we're having to piecemeal all of the uh, Hammer movies. And again, I was very fortunate that six of the eight I already owned. Uh, it's the advantage of having a large library is that you know we already have most of these movies. But uh, physical
1: media, baby.
0: Yeah. But now I want to own Twins of Evil, and I don't, so.
1: Oh, Twins of Evil.
0: That's another Synapse title, that in Vampire Circus they have.
1: I believe you can rent that on Amazon. Oh, okay. I, I believe that's how I saw yeah, it.
0: Yeah, no, that is how I saw it. Okay, because
1: yeah. um, I would love to have a shiny Blu-ray of every Hammer film uh, with supplements, except Plague of the Zombies. <laughs>
0: I think had this been like our first show in October and I watched all eight of these in the month of September, I would have had an even better experience doing this whole thing. Not right, that it was a bad now, experience, now but... it's competing with all the other... 100%, yeah. You're
1: saying you have horror overload.
0: A little bit, yeah.
1: Which will be the subtitle of the VHS film after the next one. <laughs> VHS colon... Horror overload. Well, this was or a fun, VHS uh, colon horror colon.
0: Oh, I like it. Uh, this was a fun three-year experiment, JB. Thank you for doing this with me.
1: But what on earth do we do next year? Uh,
0: let's go back to just doing one fucking movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I think that's a good rule of thumb for you and all of the other co-hosts on the show. One. One uh Frank Capra, one man, one film. Yeah, one man, man, one film. One of us. One <laughs> of us. Google <laughs> gobble. One of us.
0: Make sure you go to fthismovie.com every day to take part in the scary movie challenge. Make sure if you haven't already, you sign up for our Patreon at Patriot Patreon.com slash Fthismovie. We well yeah, we have one more scary movie month show dropping on Halloween. Most of you already know what it is. I've already teased it enough times. But uh, thank you guys again for listening. Thanks again, JB. Ooh,
1: I'm going to bring the hammer down. Yeah.